0: Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome to another Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor-at-large at at Sports Pro. Uh, Delighted to have with me this time Tarek Panja, who is a sports news correspondent for the New York Times. Welcome back, Tarek. Nice to be with you again. And uh, congratulations on the new gig, since the last time we had you on. Congratulations as well for all the work you've done turning around sales.
1: It's all me. It's all me. I'm (laughs) happy to take your your congratulations.
0: Um, Busy week for you, Tarek. Uh, We will be getting onto it a little bit um, later on in the programme. We're also going to be speaking to the Press Association's Matt Slater about some of the latest rumblings in the world of anti-doping. Um, and we're going to be talking governments and governance, the uh, role of geopolitics in sport, decisions facing rights holders, uh, working with regimes and all of that stuff. Uh, but the big story of the week is football leaks. Um, now, when I was a kid, football leaks is what happened when your mitre size five got a puncture. Um, but this is this is a, an ongoing story in Der Spiegel, uh, the German publication which has uncovered a trove of uh, emails, uh, correspondence other other documents involving some of the world's biggest football clubs, Gianni Infantino both in his capacity as General Secretary of UEFA uh, and as President of FIFA um, and a whole other grubby mess of stuff um, Tarek first of all, I mean, let's as, as close as possible give a kind of a top-down approximation of, of what we're really looking at.
1: We're looking at the underbelly, the reality of the industry of football. We don't think we call it the sport of football. It's it's um, the actors involved the money that is swirling around the industry, the um, politics, Small p and big p countries involved in football and within the football ecosystem, the various relationships. What this is exposed, I guess, is this is how football works. Now, will that affect how some people follow the game? I'm, I'm not quite sure. We got games on Sunday since the leaks on on uh, Saturday last weekend. Since the since since they dropped it. In fact, tenors didn't see anyone chanting anything. Social media, a lot of activity, I guess. But there always would be. You know. It's it's um, a very tribal sport as well. So, mm. you know, you have your, aha, I knew City were cheating, say, the United fans or whatever. Or, aha, I knew Paris Saint-Germain were up to no good, says, you know, a Marseille fan or whatever. Um, and, and FIFA, are we really surprised that there is underhand behaviour or... or, or, or kind of opaque practices in order to solidify power at the top of, of football at FIFA etc. I don't know. These are, the details are interesting here or mm. whether people are surprised I'm not sure but the details are really telling.
0: Yeah it's it's I suppose exposed what people have long suspected about how, how the game is run the way that interests are kind of corralled in, in certain directions um, by fair means and, and foul. But another thing that it's uncovered that a lot of people have long suspected is that there are uh, senior executives involved with some of the richest clubs in European football who are not averse to the idea of a breakaway European Super League. It's um, a concept that's been discussed almost as long as, as the Champions League rebrand, kind of in the, in the early 90s. Older. There, there are two things here. One is the idea of creating another tier of football where the very, very richest clubs are able to insulate themselves or able to kind of cream off. A little bit more of, of the profit but the other thing is this idea of a closed league we're separating clubs I guess by by measure of fame because this is the let, let's let's take this back a step it's the it's the 16 clubs who are the biggest TV mm. performers who were involved in some of these conversations yeah and they are separating themselves off from a, a system that is a pyramid all the way down mm. so if you are the smallest club in Spain. If you're Harrow Borough in in the UK, if you're you know, in almost every every professional league system, you can start out right at the bottom and theoretically work your way up to the top. Same is true of national teams, where you know if you are Guam or Montserrat, theoretically you have a chance of making the World Cup finals. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, I guess take this in two parts. How realistic is this prospect, first of all, in a, in a kind of logistical sense, and then in a kind of broader momentum.
1: So from a from a procedural point of view, I'm not going to uh, guess what the European courts, etc. and competition um, regulators do about it because I'm just not informed enough to give you, you know, a smart um, answer on that. But if you take it at face value, that these guys might do this, you're so saying 16 football teams who are currently playing in in various European leagues will leave those competitions, because that's what one of these uh, leaked documents suggested as an option, will leave, will play each other in a closed competition without promotion or relegation or anything like that. By, by leaving their, 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 their... They will have basically... Um, without being sanctioned by FIFA, UEFA or their local governing body... They effectively are leaving the structure of football. So a couple of things. Today, that would mean... If that happened now, right now, like tomorrow, and and they leave tomorrow, that would mean um, the world's best players, essentially are the people who are playing for these big teams, won't be wearing their national team colours anymore. Maybe people don't care about that, but the World Cup seemed quite popular to me uh, a few months ago, right? So that's a, a big thing. And then you say, well, right, they're going to play each other in this competition across Europe without any connection to their domestic league competitions. And there's going to be one one winner of this, of this league. That sounds pretty boring for the mm. teams that are going to be finishing between 5th and 16th or 5th and 19th. Which uh, is a lot
0: of teams. Which will be most been. of them, right?
1: Yeah. And the drama... Um, artificial or not created by even the race for fourth, even that disappears. Well, they're racing for nothing, really. There's only one team's going to win the league. There'll be no financial fair play or any regulations. So, I don't know, the richest country in the world perhaps could buy one of these teams and just win by paying the players a million pounds a game, whatever it is they want to do. There's going to be fewer games, they're going to play these. It, it would need to be thought through, mm. I think, a bit more than it appears to have done um and secondly um a lot of these teams have got famous the reason for their fame is a lot of it is as much as their international success in europe, europe european competition has been being dominant at home etc playing in front of four houses in england um home and away um entire sort of fan culture scenario dies so what you're saying is um, yeah but people in Asia and China are going to buy stuff yeah so what Like, do they really want to buy that much do they really care that much will they still be interested in the fourth season of the same teams never being relegated no jeopardy etc I don't know but these guys obviously have it as a potential threat they don't like clearly to, to share the wealth we've seen that already with um, their relationship with the regulators, the new Champions League cycle. Now we have four teams from the big leagues guaranteed a, a place in 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 the um, in the Champions League. Plus, they have managed, again under uh, by threatening UEFA, to get even more money from from the cash pool, pulling them further away. So at one point, at some point, you can say, well, what's the point? I, mm. How much money is enough money, and what do you do with all that money? Great for players, though, if it, if they don't care about these structures of football or playing for their countries and, all that, and just, just get extremely wealthy, potentially that that's quite good for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the upshots of this is that those hundreds and hundreds of other professional clubs around the world are not going to go away. So you can imagine there will still be a, a football structure beneath this that would, would be intact. How seriously... Do we take this as a, a kind of coherent plan at this point? Is it, is it a, a bargaining chip? Is it them saying, look, we are willing to do this? And, and you know, the, the thing to consider on the other end is that UEFA through team marketing have done their own modelling on this. They know that, you know, they know what the TV figures for a more Super League-like structure mm. look like in, in the Champions League. So what, is this something that they're really serious about?
1: I do know. There's two. There's two uh, leaked, sets of leaked documents. with this, If I, if I um, remember right, there was um, a 2016 plan, which we before. know
0: is kind of that became a part of the. Yeah, with,
1: with so. Charlie Silitano yeah. and, and, and and all of and all of this. And now there's this new Spanish. It looks like Florentino plan. Um, given that it's key capital partners and documents, it's an advisory firm that he uses, drawing up this document. Effectively asking for signatures this month, but a lot, a lot of the clubs, whether whether they're, they're being honest or not, and we must now um, question a lot of <laughs> their their um, uh, ability to tell the truth given given that the information that's leaked. Um, say that they, they they were not aware of of, of, of this plan. Uh, I don't know. I think it might just be a um, a good to have when you go to a negotiation, but it didn't seem. Uh, Fleshed out in a way that made sense to me For example One of these documents Seemed to have uh, A few teams, six or seven That would have ownership stakes mm. When uh, And I think Manchester United Wasn't among the biggest owners Of an ownership stake Can you imagine Man United signing a contract like that? I, I find that really hard to believe The the onus on a Premier League team Or the need for a Premier Premier League team An English team to do anything like this is is far lower than, than their The only reason their rivals want to do this is because the Premier League is so successful. Mm. You know, uh, their Bundesliga and, and um, La Liga, they're trying to grow internationally, but they're never going to compete with the Premier League at this level, right, in terms of, uh, like, a global audience reach and, and that revenue. It's because of the Premier League that they want to do this,
0: they can catch up. The Premier League basically wants to be that global. Global league, brand. right?
1: Yeah. And now, uh, look... So, you know, the, the only reason for the Premier League teams to do it is because they're greedy. Mm. There's no real need for them compared to the others. Now, if you look at Bayern Munich, they're dominating this league, which is um, Paris Saint-Germain. Juventus, is you know, always pushing this stuff. He's, even before the leagues, he went public saying he thinks um, league football should be reduced to... Um, a weekday tournament and, and, and big European mm. competition should be played at the weekend. I mean, he's public saying this. You could see why, because in the end, they'll say, hang on a minute, we're never going to compete with the Premier League. Some of these teams have ageing squads. Eventually, um, will they be pushed aside comp- in a, on a competitive level? Where Madrid and Barca need to build new stadiums, etc. Mm. Et if the Premier League
0: keeps growing. Mm. So,
1: yeah... Long, long way of saying, uh, I don't know how real and how tomorrow this would be.
0: Yeah. Is it an accident that this conversation has been taking place, this latter conversation, at a similar time to FIFA's project for, for an expanded Club World Cup? Or are the two things, do you think, completely coincidental?
1: Yeah, I think it's also happening at the same time as UEFA's plans... For the next major cycle of Champions League, because at the moment they they made they tinkered with it. People say it's a major change to the fact that we've got these more teams from the big big five leagues and and more money, but it's still essentially the Champions League as as we more or less know. Mm-hmm. The next iteration is under discussion of European competition in general. UEFA and they're planning. You mentioned the Club World Cup debates going on, and then above all of that is it's a very boring. Um, <laughs> you know, set of words to describe, but, you know, international match calendar mm-hmm. is the kind of, you know, focal point for all these forces because national team versus club football, um, how many competitions, elite level competitions, how many games, players, unions involved, like that. that is the the, the, the debate, is this, is this issue of calendar. And all these competitions, as long as they're under the ages of FIFA, as we have it now, or not... Some some breakaway group, that will all be defined by by, by these negotiations over mm. over calendar. I think,
0: mm. and of course we have the disruption to the calendar in this next cycle, with um, because I think we're talking about twenty one to yeah. twenty four, yeah. which is what UEFA are into the planning phase for now, yeah. um, and the disruption will come when the World Cup is held, in uh, in Qatar yeah. in November December. Yeah, let's move on to just uh, just mop up some of the other the other leaks the other bits of gloop that have found their way onto the shoes of of the international sports media. The figure of Gianni Infantino appears several times through this, particularly some of the historical stuff around PSG and Manchester City um, and their attempts to kind of circumvent, or not even circumvent, bulldoze the the financial fair play regulations in, in their various guises. Again, is this just an example of, are we just seeing you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak.
1: A bit, and, and, a bit, and I think, on, on one level, I think, it's, is it that abnormal? <laughs> your, two of your biggest entities and a negotiation and a settlement, uh, you know, should he be part of that conversation? You know, I guess people say, you know, there should be Chinese walls, et cetera, mm. and they should never happen. But I think it was kind of inevitable that these meetings do take place. don't live in an island. You know, football is a small ecosystem... The, the the relationships in general are extremely conflicted and, and 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 this has happened i think what was also interesting of the sort of weird and wonderful actors that emerged is Nicolas Sarkozy for example lobbying it seems for Manchester City in, in 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 this process again a lawyer would uefa would know better but it seems to me that uefa was petrified that its rules weren't good enough mm. these these um clubs are so um, wealthy in terms of their backing, and so kind of important to the image of, say, UAE and Qatar. They're strategically important things. These countries almost have the power. And you saw in one of the emails, um, you know, rather crudely, say, we can destroy UEFA. Mm. Can't remember which, which, which of the clubs, but either of them could have, could have, could have written that and could have thought about that because they have unlimited resources to take on this football governing body with a very. Um, curious set of regulations. And on the other hand, the, the details just show the lengths these teams went to. Especially, uh, again, I haven't seen... I, I can't speak for the documents because I don't have them. This is the, the hacker John, or sorry, the, the whistleblower John. Uh, who's passed it on to Der Spiegel and this EIC group? But but the the, the, the detail, for example, about um, Manchester City's alleged efforts to inflate sponsorship deals using the money of the the the, the Sheikh um, Sheikh Mansour are, are quite interesting mm. um, and and revealing and maybe worrying and perhaps show that UEFA might have been out of its depth.
0: Mm. Just want to make it clear that SportsPro uh, and my employers, in no way, suggesting that John came about these documents illegally. As you say, the, the attempts to kind of um, inflate sponsorship values again were something that a lot of people kind of suspected at the time. Absolutely. You know, this this does have the feel, as you say, of a negotiation between. Uh, it's the kind of thing you might see in the tech industry. It's the kind of thing you you would certainly see in financial services industry of. Mm-hmm you know, someone being caught doing something or planning to do something without getting caught and, and going through the regulator and, you know, hashing out some kind of, uh, some kind of a deal. What does football's response and what does organised sport's response to this need to be? Can it stand to be fatalistic? Does it kind of gather again and say, OK, well, how do we build a framework that works in this, you know, again, financially bigger world that, that it now operates in?
1: Yeah, and also, what about the smaller clubs. Actually, th- there's an interesting point here. While these two clubs may not have been sanctioned in the way um, others say they should have been, there's been a lot of clubs who actually have been banned who don't have um, a, a big stake behind them or own UEFA's TV rights, for example. Um, what about those teams? Um, Kalatasaray, I think, have been banned. Um, East, a few East European teams have been mm-hmm. missed miss seasons of Champions League uh, or European competitions. I'd, I'd be Pretty frustrated. I think um, Romo tweeted um, in response to this. Um, uh, Romo are quite creative with their social media of, of recent years. Of I think it was a it was a, a snow covered mountainside, and um, a mother bear and her cub trying to scale <laughs> this 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 mountain, slipping along the way. Just saying, uh, I think the phrase was was FFP is challenging brackets for some of us. Potentially, uh, UEFA has left itself open to um, appeals, if not court action, maybe, from, from, from clubs who actually have been punished based on not meeting financial fair play requirements or, or being recalcitrant or, or, or um, being serial offenders, which you could argue, based on this, Man City and, and, and PSG have been. So, potentially, uh, trouble is brewing. <laughs>
0: Very dicey. They'll know where to get some good lawyers, though. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a sprawling topic, and it's one that we could spend quite a bit more time talking about. But let's, let's uh, cap it there for part one. We'll be with Matt Slater uh, talking anti-doping just after this. Enjoying this sports pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with SportsPro. Hello again and welcome to part two of the SportsPro podcast. Uh, Now before we go on, just a quick note to remind you of the SportsPro OTT Summit happening now at the end of this month, 28th and 29th of November In Madrid, a whole range of senior figures from the world of digital broadcasting involved from the Olympic Channel to Sky Sports, Eleven Sports, Turner, Comcast, the PGA Tour, NBA uh, and plenty besides. If you would like to join us there, if you're interested in getting a pass, which I think would be a very good idea, uh, I'd head to sportspro-ott.com and find out how you can do that. Um... Right, getting on with this week's podcast and uh, September's reinstatement of Rusada, the Russian anti-doping agency, has triggered a schism in the global anti-doping movement with a string of condemnations from athlete representatives and groups and a further split between national bodies and the World Anti-Doping Agency. It's a picture complicated, of course, by WADA's relationship with the International Olympic Committee and with international federations across sport uh, and with the resultant pressures that were brought to bear to reintroduce Russia as a sporting competitor and a host of major events. Matters came to a head last week when USADA, the American Anti-Doping Agency, convened an emergency meeting in the White House, of all places, now, earlier this week, I caught up with Press Association Chief Sports Reporter and Sports Pro columnist, Matt Slater, who slogged his way through some of these competing narratives and battled against an intermittent connection to provide some background and context to the ongoing disputes and to try and plot a path forward from here. Matt Slater, welcome back to the Sports Pro podcast. Hi, how are you? Very well, thanks. Very well. I um, hope you are too, Matt. It's been a busy, confusing, frustrating—whatever you want to call it—week in the world of anti-doping. Maybe not surprising. Um, why, don't you, why don't you just set the scene for us? What have we seen? Uh, what have we seen happen in the last few days and weeks?
2: Oh, um, well, uh, oh, I mean, it's been—it's been a little bit confusing, to be honest, to, to keep up with all the various strands. So perhaps the easiest easiest way of simplifying all this is um, we, are, we are still, for people that are interested in anti-doping, like the anti-doping community, for want of a better word, is still struggling, really, with the pull-out from the Russian doping scandal And the stress fractures and strains that that caused um, are threatening to, to kind of pull... The World Anti-Doping Agency apart. They are threatening to overturn, you know, what has been the best part of 20-year consensus about how to how to approach anti-doping in, um, in elite sports. Um, and, I, you know, you could you could very much focus on the various meetings, the various outbreaks, if you like, in this civil war over the last few weeks. Or you could take a sort of very, like, long view and, and go right back to the beginning and how WADA was put Together, how it's been from the very beginning a a, a compromise some people might say compromised organization half funded by sport, if you like effectively International Olympic Committee which which gives its half of its budget and provides half of its half the people on the foundation board half the people on the executive committee come from the world of sports and then the other half comes from from governments but you know that, that's that's governments around the world it's a it's an unusual organization and I think the shock of what Russia did has, has challenged some assumptions about how it operates, certainly challenged its way of doing things, resources. What do you do when it's a nation, a very powerful, you know, sporting superpower, someone who really, you know, should be as a signatory to, to the you know, Wilder's Code, Wilder's Rules, um, Yeah, is is providing some of the budget as well. What do you do when when they're the chief? It's been a really, really, you know, every time I sort of think we're getting through this Russian situation, something flares up that reveals, no, we're not over it at all. But the funny thing is, in the last few weeks, no one's really been talking about Russia at all. Russia, you know, arguably, as I say, the Russian crisis caused all this, but this has really become an internal dispute between the various factions of voices at WADA, it's, um, it's, it's it's hard to see a way out of it. Yeah, is
0: it, it's one of those things, I suppose, where crisis has, has revealed division rather than um, brought about cohesion. Very much
2: so. At the beginning of this year, we still had anger about, well, has Russia been properly dealt with? Has it been sanctioned? That's rumbled on all year in that um, WADA has... has continue to hold uh, Russia to account in terms of it, its member association, that's the Russian, anti-doping Rosada, the Russian Anti-Doping Agency, which has been wound up almost uh, ever since the end of 2014, I think. But WADA was under enormous pressure to, to sort of move on, to, to, mm. to get Rosada back in the fold, um, to, to get a Russian Anti-Doping Agency functioning again, um, you know, you could argue for perfectly good legitimate reasons that that's a big job for WADA to oversee. That's a big job for the International Federations to do extra testing on Russian athletes whenever they get the chance. That's, that's how we got to the position that has caused this most recent outbreak. And that is what happened a couple of months ago, where, where WADA, with various caveats, did reinstate, but But much to the annoyance of various athletes, Who felt WADA had climbed down on the tough criteria initially set for reinstatement? It did it despite calls for more transparency on on its kind of working out. It all did appear to be a bit of a a backroom deal. Again, you could argue that's just the way it is often, you know, when you're dealing with nation states. But it certainly left a lot of people unhappy because I think what they thought WADA would do is stick to. This this roadmap is written down. Okay, here's what you have to do to be reinstated Russia. And they feel that it, it hadn't met these last two three key criteria and and what we've got is a fudge. What we've got mm. is is something that wouldn't be tolerated for an athlete who fails a drugs test. Mm. You know, that's written down in black and white. And you know, an athlete signs up for that when they become a Olympic paralympic athlete and and and, and that is how we should deal with wrongdoing on a national scale as well. So what we've seen really since that, that key decision to, to reinstate Rosada, which which Wada sort of feel they didn't have a great deal of choice over and they're actually, you know, they're not backing down. They, they, they feel that they should be proud of that. They've worked hard on getting Rosada client again and they're not going to, uh, you know, just climb back in their box and, and pretend nothing's happened. They're going to continue to oversee what Russia's up to and they're going to demand that Russia... Meets the things that it's recently agreed to, um, but you've got national doping agencies, you've got athletes' groups who are furious, and we think, think that was a a, uh, a surrender, uh, and are saying that look, do we do we need to do we need to massively rethink how we've dealt with anti-doping for the last twenty years? Can we trust Wilder? Is Wilder broken? Uh, and that's where we're at.
0: Mm. I mean, we haven't really. It, we... Have we really seen anything like this before, like the event that we had uh, at the White House last week as we're speaking, you know, led by Travis Tygart, who's obviously, because of the achievements that USADA had with uh, with the Lance Armstrong case, is quite well regarded in these circles, basically calling out the president of WADA and then being responded to in turn in, in London. I mean, have we seen this kind of internal fracture before?
2: Um, I mean... Yes, yes and no. I mean, look, Travis Seigert's been been doing this for, for 18 months or so, two years or so. You know, he's been he's been the, the loudest critic of, if you like, the anti-doping establishment. And over the last year, we've seen the national doping agencies, certainly, let's say, the 25, 30 leading ones. And, and, and by that, we kind of mean the Western ones, the ones in North America, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. Um, you know, the, the type of countries that win medals, the wealthier countries, the ones that, that, that do function, um, they've been very upset, as have athletes' groups, be they in Canada, the States, UK, Scandinavia. You know, they, they, they've basically been singing from the same hymn sheet on the need to be tough with Russia, not to back down from the suggestion that the IFC were way too willing to move on. You know, get things back to normal. You know, they, they, they wanted, wanted, they wanted Russia to be to be dealt with. And um, you know, what we had last week, which was unusual, I think, was there was a big meeting in Paris. Uh, national Security Agencies have been united, or certainly the ones that talk have been united for quite some time. But we had a, you know, a fresh statement. They wanted a bigger voice, At WADA. Disappointed with the, you know, the decision around the reinstatement. We had announcement from them I think on Friday the following Wednesday we had a kind of repeat of that with a bit more glitz and glamour and some added stardust in terms of athletes but the main point was the backdrop, it was at the White House mm. um, and that, that, that was new I think, I think that, you know, the things that they were saying a lot of the messaging was exactly the same it really was the, the, the points made were not new it was where they were making and I think it's interesting for a few reasons. You know, one, of course, the United States uh, is the largest single contributor in terms of national governments to WADA's budget. So it has a voice. Uh, it's also, the United States as a nation would be the largest single contributor to the Olympic budget. And then they're hosting the 2028 Olympics. Mm. And, it, and it, there is a growing rumour that they might have to rescue the 2026 winter games as well because we're having yeah. a very very disappointing uh, bidding contest for the winter games and uh, many people think that uh, a kind of red balloon's going to go up soon and, a, and a, you know a, a rescue please can America can you come up with a credible candidate please for the 2026 games and you know and if that happens you've got 2026 2028 you've got America effectively owning the owning the games for you know, for, for, for a, for a, a big, big chunk of time at a time when its you, and many of its athletes are really angry with the IOC, WADA, Russia, you know, it's, it's, the fault lines are obvious.
0: Yeah. How significant is it that all of this is happening now when we're approaching the end of Sir Craig Reedy's final term in, in charge of WADA? Do people feel like they can move now and, and make something happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is politics, isn't it? So term term limits, elections drive a lot of this, just as they do in any other in any other walk of life, in any other walk of politics, in any other sort of variety of politics. And and um, Sir Craig Reedy, his his term is up next year, where there's an awful lot of jockeying for position. The way Wilder works is it alternates its its presidencies between sport and governments. So we've gone sport government. Sport, it's government's turn, um, and yeah, the, the the big question is, do we have, do we swing back to a, a really independent government voice who's gonna who's gonna stare the IOC down? And if it is, if it is a row with Russia or China or whoever it might be next, to the states, who knows? If if it if it's that, it means you know upsetting a few international federations and. Their budgets in a bit of difficulty, and saying you know that country cannot post anything for a while, that country cannot come heat for a while. You know if it, if, it, if that's what it takes, and then you know that's what we're going to get, or are we going to get a more consensual? Let's kind of work together. Um, let's not be too uh, hasty in, in how we um, approach some of these these issues. We just don't know. And people are sort of suggesting some names. The obvious one current vice president, because whoever would be president, let's say sport is president, so the vice president would be government, and that's Linda Helleland, who is a politician from Norway, who is, in the last few years, has has become almost like the standard there for, for the National Anthropoc athlete voice. Let, let's not let the IOC and their political machinations govern how we deal with very, very serious wrongdoing. Let's stick to what's written down in the rules, and if it means... Being really, really strict with Russia, but let's be really, really strict with Russia. And you know, there are various people saying she hasn't got a chance because she has nailed her colours very firmly to, if you like, the uh, the rebel alliance. Um, you know, the, the IC just 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 won't tolerate that because let's not forget they do provide half the money and they provide probably more because because they are more coherent. You know, they do have a big, a big say, a very big say at wider. Um, so it's it's yes. Look, Uber bases really is 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 huge, huge.
0: Market. Yeah, and and finally, I mean, through this whole episode, um, and and particularly the aftermath, and we've seen you know the kind of the rush to to get back into Russia for for some of these um for some of the 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 federations involved in the Olympic movement. How viable does a WADA that's not completely independent of any sporting organization look now
2: well i mean this is these are the big questions owen and um you know ultimately this is going to come down to 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 fans at home broadcasters sponsors people that want to host sports and i i don't know i don't know i mean people people are trying to make the argument that it's happening already that this is why as i mentioned a few moments ago that they're struggling to find hosts for the Winter Games. You know, they they had to do something a little bit unusual with the 2024 and 2028 Summer Games. But now, is that is that because people are losing a bit of faith in in how elite sport, how the Olympic movement is is is, is handling doping, or is that because of rising costs? Is that because the actual product isn't as sexy and as exciting as it once used to be? Who who knows? There are definite signs that people are unimpressed with the response to Russia. There are definite signs that in some countries there is a view that Russia got away, right? But then you realise that it's the same countries, it's the same athletes that are doing all the talking. You know, we, we, we hear nothing from large swathes of the world. Is that, is that because they're, they're on Twitter? Is that because, you know, I don't read their languages? Is that because they don't... Is that because they don't feel enabled to speak? So it's that's that's difficult. It's a challenge. You have to sort of try and work out how important this is to people. What is absolutely undeniable is, WADA has spent the last four or five years totally obsessed about Russia, trying to punish them, but trying to sort of get things back on track. And is now, I is now embroiled in a you know in a civil war. Is now embroiled in a kind of. Um, existential argument about what it's for. And that, that can't you know, just in terms of distraction, in terms of the amount of bandwidth they've got to think about things, that can't I don't know what this means for the movement. I don't know what this means uh, for our faith in what we see in Tokyo in 2020. I think that's down to the individual. And, and perhaps it's going to take longer for some of this stuff to work through. But I do know that water right now is in a bad place. And that the anti doping movement is in a bad place. And that can't be good.
0: Welcome back to the Sports Bro Podcast. Uh, thanks to Matt for his. Thoughts on all the cheering, anti-doping news? Some more cheering news this time from the world of, uh, of, of international federations, or national federations in one case. The USOC, the United States Olympic Committee, announcing that it's going to take steps to declassify USA Gymnastics, which has failed, it would be fair to say, to, uh, to redress the balance after after the fallout from the, the scandal involving Larry Nassar Uh, and his serial uh, abuse of gymnasts in his care during his time as a doctor for for USA Gym. Internationally, IBA, the global amateur boxing body, electing against the advice of anyone remotely sensible, uh, Gafur Rakimov, um, an Uzbek businessman who is wanted, or is is deemed to be among the world's most wanted uh, criminals by the US Treasury, uh, who believe that he has links to the global heroin trade. Um, despite that, he beat Sarek, uh Konakbaev by 86 votes to 48. He must have had one hell of a platform, Tarek.
1: Fantastic uh, story, depressing story. But boxing has um, had governance issues since you know, as long as I think we've been covering yeah. <laughs> covering, covering this sport. And this kind of uh, is, is the cherry on that rotten... Cake, I guess. The, the fact, I think the Treasury's description of him, one of them, was um, one of Ukraine's leading criminals. So, you know, then you could say it has taken over world boxing <laughs> <laughs> it is it's, it's, it's a remarkable thing. You can imagine um, the, the IOC's tension and the fact they're pulling their hair out. But I would like to add that the IOC does sometimes pick and choose. Uh, which which characters it goes after. Um, let's not forget, Sheikh Ahmed is still warmly welcomed mm. in in the corridors of power at the very highest levels. Even though you know he's a unindicted co-conspirator as well as far as the um, United States Justice Department is concerned. Um, and 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 there are uh, a few others. Um, we don't need to go into the details. But again, this is an issue of global sports governance. And. I guess it also shows the lines of what's correct or mo- morally right or, or, or how or governance, um, what's correct. There seems to be lots of shades of grey mm. depending on, on, on where you are. In the world. I'm sure everyone can draw the line at, in uh, <laughs> uh, inverted commas, one of Ukraine's leading criminals. But there just seems to be a lot of, flexibility as far as people are concerned when it comes to probity. Um, and it's across across the board, it seems, in, in, in sport. Um, and just on, on, on that theme, very quickly, with the anger and angst about the anti-doping activities, or, or, or inability for them to do their work as far as some people are concerned. And these voices are legitimate, of course, but very much based in Western countries. Mm. Canada... North America and and um, Western Europe.
0: Yeah, it's the point that Matt Matt made as well. Um.
1: Where is everyone else? Do they care? Do they not care? Or or is it they're not allowed to care? But when we talk about global movements and opposition, we either need to make the point that this is a you know part a part of the world, or call out the rest of the world. So are you okay with like flimsy potentially flimsy um, care over anti doping? And if not, well, that's what we've got then. That is mm-hmm. the global sports environment, and some people don't care if people are up to no good.
0: Yeah. Speaking of which, he says with the confidence of someone who has uh, an absolutely gilded segue lined up, Saudi Arabia. The, the October, there was a, an awful lot of discussion about the Saudi role in world affairs. It's something that, you know, it's it's been a periodic part of all of our lives, I suppose, the, the the outsized influence that, that Saudi Arabia has because of, um, because of its wealth, in spite of some of its erasure of certain political norms, certain um, expectations around human rights, around um, you know its role as an actor in, in global conflict. we just had another one of those flashpoints in the last few weeks. Um, we, we discussed on the, the programme last week with the, um, uh, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Now, you've been following some of their activities in sport, which have been more uh, prominent in the last year with with, uh, the Vision 2030 project that that Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince, has been pursuing. What were your expectations, I guess, following that along, of how it would affect some of the organisations that are involved in sport that have gravitated towards Saudi Arabia in, in the last 10 months or so?
1: I think there's a blueprint for it as well. I think uh, sport gravitates to money. We've seen it in the past: Russia, in some respects, certain sports federations, uh, Qatar in, in, in big, big way. And it's not just sports federations; it's, it can impact the, um, I think, the audiovisual market as well. We've seen massive effect already, even though it's a very um, young project that they that they have under this very young prince as well. It's all it's all relatively. The, the speed um, at which they've attacked this this field sports is is quite breathtaking. I think in many ways, you have um, this sports minister or type of sports minister. I think that's what we would describe him as um, quite an outspoken guy, big big dude, Turkey Turkey Al Sheikh. He is. Um, very close, I understand, to the Crown Prince. Very, very good friend of his. Not sure he has any particular background in, in sports previous to this. Uh, and I'm not sure he was a sportsman based on um, on his appearances on, on TV, etc. Um, but he has been very visible as as entities have been kind of hoovered up, including um, um, wrestling events. Um, WWE wrestling. WWE, yeah, so. uh, that they've... That they've uh, thrown the kitchen sink at and made uh, a couple of events already. Uh, we've had um, um, quite surprisingly, I didn't see that one happening. But the the end of that boxing uh world yeah. series of boxing, which had already begun before that. I think there was Saudi interest suddenly. Right, I will take the final. Right, you got that. So they 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 they, they then went into that um, into Egypt, really muscling into the domestic football league. Then kind of messing it up in a way. I think they. Um, unsettled a couple of clubs, or he did, by investing some money and then not investing some money. Um, um, the tentacles reach far and wide. Um, before we get into sort of um, the, the, the sort of political role or the football politics of this, is also, uh, I think you, you've discussed it before, and I think your readers will be quite aware of, and your listeners will be aware of the, the, hack- the piracy situation mm-hmm. involving um, this <laughs> well funded startup imaginatively titled Be Out Q, which has been pirating uh, be in sports content now for more than a year without anyone seemingly able to do anything about it. Um, The Saudis seem determined to deny it's it's them, even though the social media for it is in points to it being based in Saudi Arabia uh, that you can buy it. In Saudi Arabia, and that its website is geo locked into Saudi Arabia. All of that happening at the same time as this diplomatic spat with Qatar, which uh, you know it might end soon, might not. You know, it shows no sign of ending. You know, it's, it just seems a very reckless environment right now. And then on the political field, you have um, the Asian Football Confederation elections next year. There's at least one Saudi candidate, possibly even two. Taking on um, Sheikh Salman, who's from Bahrain, which is a um, a state which kind of relies on Saudi Arabia in an extremely significant way and would never move against it. So that puts his future into you know, mm. to question itself. and yeah, and on and on and on uh, till we get to relationships with the biggest of the beasts when it comes to sport and governance. FIFA. Gianni Infantino has been to Saudi Arabia three times in the last year you've got to wonder why. FIFA has steadfastly refused to say who is behind this mystery $25 billion offer for Club World Cup and the Nations League. I understand it's, as do many other people, (laughs) that it's SoftBank, um, Japanese conglomerate, which has very, very close links to um, Saudi Arabia, and in particular the, the, the Crown Prince. The ruler, de facto ruler of, of, of Saudi Arabia, um, and that has caused you know serious friction. The project has mm. between FIFA and UEFA and the clubs, um, leagues, etc. Uh, and um, you know there's no sign of re- resolution here.
0: Mm. We had a conversation last week, quite briefly, really, about um, what. Impact the Khashoggi row was going to have what impact some of the discussions around Saudi Arabia around the whole issue of sport washing and and you know these these various kind of ethical concerns were going to have on 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 sport and on on some of the plans for events there and and so on. I think the bellwether, you know, you you mentioned SoftBank um, who have been spending Saudi Arabia's money through this their own. Uh, curiously, Vision Fund, which I always have to double check and make sure that I haven't got the two conflated, but that, that they are that closely branded. But uh, their their chief executive um, Masayoshi Son, uh, coming out earlier this week, when asked about the the Khashoggi um, episode, he decried it as a you know as a an outrage and a, a terrible uh, terrible crime and, and all the rest of it. But he added, and I quote. At the same time, we have also accepted the responsibilities to the people of Saudi Arabia, an obligation we take quite seriously to help them manage their financial resources and diversify their economy. As horrible as this event was, we cannot turn our backs on the Saudi people as we work to help them in their continued efforts to reform and modernise their society. So, I mean, that sounds like... It sounds like it's hard to
1: give up uh, $45 billion dollars. Yeah. which is the investment in, in the Vision Fund from Saudi Arabia. It also sounds like it's hard to give up the prospect of a second investment of $45 billion, which Crown Prince um, mentioned, I think, to Bloomberg in an interview, while Khashoggi was, at that point, missing. Mm. Um, sadly, it's fact of fact of life that business leaders are are quite comfortable holding their nose when high-stakes investments are concerned. That the the success of the Vision Fund and Masayoshi Son's own um, vision for his um, constellation of businesses is inextricably tied to the fortunes of, of, of Saudi Arabia and particularly to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. It's obviously most impossible for him to wean himself off off that um, source of, of 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 money, and you know, a PR statement. He had to say something, didn't he? Mm. In the end, it's but, been
0: quite but that, a few days. But that does feel like the line that's almost like the invisible cloak that other others are going to are going to kind of don going forward. They're going to say, "Look, this was awful, but now it's about separating right this regime from." Although you know they're taking money from the regime, but right. the you know from. The opportunity that exists here with Saudi Arabia—that we can create this new participant in in, in the region—and and, you know,
1: it's always been that way. Though I, I, I would say, you know, I don't know who they're fool—who they think they're fooling. Though I think it's pro-forma. Mm. Put a statement out. Hope the the wind, in terms of headlines, changes direction. Media will find something else, some other outrage to to focus on, and. They can be left alone to carry on doing their doing their business. It was interesting. There was the um, there was the conference, Saudi the Saudi investment conference, where I think um, several politicians and and some business people were were um, kind of shamed mm. into not attending. However, it was also interesting that those who were attending made a point of hiding their badge. You know, he's <laughs> still there, and. It, <laughs> You know, just that—that that just feeding at the teat. You know, that is a lot of money, and um, too 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 much to resist for for a lot of um, countries, for a lot of companies, for a lot of investors, a lot of individuals.
0: Yeah. This expansion of of, of Saudi activities in sport—it followed some reforms, some of them more cosmetic than others, but some of them, you know, at least to an international observer, looking quite tangible. That the. the you know allowing women to attend matches allowing women to drive all of this kind of thing that um, perhaps brought Saudi Arabia into the ranks as far as people could could align it in their imagination with some of the other states in in the Gulf region but at the same time I think what we're seeing internationally is a drift of more and more countries towards authoritarianism um, an embrace of more and more countries that haven't in the way that perhaps, we might have talked about in the 1990s say, mm-hmm. haven't opened up trade at the same time as opening up their laws and their uh, their customs to, to more people and, and becoming freer societies. Um, China is an example of, they've, they've kind of come so far, they aren't looking like they're gonna come much further and it's not stopping people from, from investing there and it's not pe- stopping people from trading there. And you know, lots of the democracies um, are getting less free, I mean we're talking on the day of the midterm election, so we we won't count the U.S. in that in that yeah. collection just yet. But um, you know, you you spent a lot of time in in the early part of this decade in Brazil, where they've elected uh, an uh, let's let's add the caveat potentially authoritarian leader. But you know, his he's made his ambitions relatively clear. Um, is this just going to be something that we have to cope with intellectually and and, and ethically that? There are going to be more parts of the world that, where people are going to be doing business that they've just compromised. I think um,
1: we're in a moment in terms of politics where where where, where the status quo has been shaken up, obviously, and um, there's many reasons for it: social media being one, and this this issue of fake news being other, the inequality, etc. But um, in terms of doing business with. Um, Regimes we're not comfortable with. I just I I think we've always been doing it though. Uh, We talk about it more Mm -hmm. because there is more space to kind of there's you can send a tweet very quickly, an angry tweet or a Facebook post or or something, and then the the narrative kind of is 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 being fed. But um, in terms of ethical trading or ethical business, I don't know if it's any worse now. Than than, than 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 it's been before. I just think maybe the public's awareness of it is greater mm. because of the mediums you know we just mentioned. You know the pursuit of, of 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 selling stuff to questionable regimes. I can't. I don't know. I can't see that going away. I think Germany was the only one I believe, um, and it has been in many respects a bright spot against the authoritarian turn and perhaps doing the right thing over the last few years. Where, in the aftermath of Jamal Khashoggi's murder, she Merkel's government said they would stop arms trading or being sold to Saudi Arabia, whereas we haven't, US haven't, mm. French haven't. In fact, Macron said it would be stupid, shouldn't equate the two things, we're still going to do that. And, you know, meanwhile, since then, slightly belatedly, well belatedly, I'd say, we're seeing these horrific images coming from Yemen, which is a you know, humanitarian disaster um, partly linked to our business relationship with this country as well but that doesn't show any sign of, of stopping um, and as for Bolsonaro um, some of the things he's, 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 he's also not a new person this is interesting mm. in fact he's a seven term congressman who's got, who never achieved anything it's almost like a reaction to reality let's pick this guy who has um, is, is openly supported you know, um, the dictatorship as fascist tendencies at least in what he says um, racist and homophobic I mean that kind of rap sheet it, it impugns the Brazilian population I guess in some way or on the other hand shows how desperate they are for a change and I guess guess we'll see
0: mm. Right, that's, uh, that's a cheerful note to end it on but let's <laughs> Let's change it up a bit, um, just so we're not kind of uh, we're not sending people off screaming. Let's find a note of optimism on. You've been, you know, you've been let loose in your time at the New York Times. You've been able to pursue some stories that are a little bit more unusual than perhaps on a daily sports news beat. What are some of the causes for optimism that you found out there in the world of sport? What are some of the things that that excite you that make you think? Maybe there's going to be a different way of doing things
1: well one people still despite all the people trying to ruin it The the, the actual enthusiasm and kind of interest in sport is is still strong and people You know are, are participating and it's drawing new new people into into the industry I, I was li- recently in Spain where which has uh, La Liga a uh, very conservative world when it comes to the management of its, its football clubs. There's two two female executives running teams over there, La Liga teams, which in, in the past might have been unthought un, un of when you when you have, you know, those cigar-filled rooms. They have now uh, 40% of La Liga's workforce is is, is female as well. And the, the interest in, in, in the sport and being participants among um, a more varied group of people uh, it, it is growing, That that's interesting. And from a, from a gender equality side, something quite interesting and, and positive, um, Real Sociedad, uh, team in the Basque country, um, last week changed their anthem, an anthem that the club has had for a long time when the players run out. Changed the word, come on, you boys, uh, in, in Basque, I don't know what the word is for that, uh, to come on the team. Uh, because they realise that 30, 40 percent of their match attending fan base is, is female, and times have changed. So, in terms of evolution, positive changes, I, I think there's some s- much more to be done. But the sort of diversity of people um, in, in, in sports and sports governance is, is is broadening, and that might, in time have an impact on some of the gloomier stuff that we, we, we discussed earlier on mm. I think on um, well, my recent travels I've, I've seen that as a, as a big positive
0: Tarek thanks very much for that uh, thank you for joining us this week thanks as well to Matt Slater for his contribution uh, thanks to all of you for listening, back with you next week bye bye